Welcome to the Boiled Out Coffee Club Podcast, the meeting after the meeting where we talk about our experience living sober. We don't speak for Alcoholics Anonymous. This is only our experience. We have no monopoly on sobriety. If you don't like our approach, that's okay. There's lots of ways to live and lots of ways to live sober. This works for us. I'm Don. Hey, Don. I'm Sam, y'all. Sam, it's good to see you again. You too. It seems like it's been a month of Sundays or so. <laughs> it's but well, I've been gone for a week. I was working out of town. I and, missed you. Uh, well, I missed you. I missed AA. I didn't go to one meeting. The whole yeah, time. we totally missed you. And by the way, we're talking about sex in that meeting right now, too. Oh, that's right. Yeah. We're at that place in the big book. And our meeting's real slow, so we're going to be talking about sex for another three weeks at least. Well, good. We'll get back to that. <laughs> we'll get back to that topic. We need to talk about sex in AA. Yeah, we do. We, we, need, do, we do not talk about it enough. I could use an overhauling there when I came in, and I got... I got hauled. And I'm all about that straight pepper diet, man. <laughs> well, we have a guest. We do have a guest. Hi, guest. Who are you? My name is Wayne S. Wayne. Hey, Wayne. Wayne, I'm glad you're here. Glad you're here. Big well, time. thank you, fellas. I'm glad to be here. Let, let me ask you, what was, uh, when did you get sober? The last trip in AA last was trip. August the 23rd, 1977. 1977. I was but a wee thing. And I was but a wee thing. That, I was, in uh, 1977, I was probably tripping in a barn in Pleasant Garden. <laughs> in 1977, I was probably tripping over my shoelaces in the playground. <laughs> <laughs> you are a youngster. I was seven years old then. <laughs> so uh, tell us about what it was like. What happened uh, that last time that made you feel like that? AA was where you needed to go, because that's not an easy decision to make. Well, Donna really didn't have any choice about it. I'd run out of all ideas and places. My wife was serving me papers. I'm losing my kids, my St. Bernard, (laughs) my house. Of course, the house was gone anyway. We were four months behind on the payments, and, and, uh, and the very thought of losing my family Something had to give, and I went to AA as a last resort, but I did not believe it was going to work as I had previously tried earlier. You've been in before? Yes, I had. How how many times? Well, actually just one time. I came in in December of 1969. A Catholic priest friend of mine, a Monsignor, told me about his brother in Ireland was an alcoholic and uh and the, what AA had done for him. So I went to AA and tried it and picked up a chip. This was in Rockledge, Florida. Mm-hmm. And I uh, went right out and got drunk. Yeah, and drank for eight years. <laughs> eight more years, yeah. Three DUIs, hospitalization, shock treatments to wow. my brain, the whole, the whole gamut. They were trying to figure out what in the hell was wrong with you. <laughs> well, I was too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what was wrong with you? It turned out it was alcohol? I was raised, my, my father was an alcoholic and and, uh, and it was a terrible childhood. We were about dysfunctional before they even discovered the word. Uh-huh. My oldest sister, I'm the baby of, of actually four children. My oldest sister was chronically alcoholic. My middle sister moved to New York and moved away from the family. She ran, she ran away from home. She married and ran away from home. My youngest sister, got addicted to religion. And I, I really believe in looking back at this that the religious addiction was worse than alcohol. I mean, it was, I couldn't even stand to be around her. I mean, everything was, she literally believed every word of the Bible. And and uh, I had dropped out of my church when I was a young kid, never intended to go back. And I imagined God up there in a white cloud with his white suit on and a white beard down to his belly and he's got a piece of sleep. He's writing all these things down on it and every one of them got gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, that's right, <laughs> that's yes. right. That's what got me about it. I, I was, I couldn't handle it. Yeah, I got a friend who calls that the squish God. He's just gonna squish you under his thumb. <laughs> Smite. Smite. Might smite me. God at that time in my mind was about the size of a quarter. 
And now, after all these years in AA, God is larger than the sun. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And a very, very vital part of my life is my faith in God. My belief. I don't have faith in God anymore. I do not believe in God anymore, as strange as that sounds. I know God is real. I absolutely know that from experiences. And he, yeah. touched me. he touched me. Now, I believe in Christianity. Mm-hmm. My wife died and I believe, two years ago, and I believed it, that we'll be together again. But that's faith. Now, I, I don't know that, but I believe that. Mm-hmm. So there's a difference in belief and knowing. And I know God is real. And nobody will ever change my mind about that. Because you've had an experience. Well, they, I, I, I looked for God all my life, forty almost 41 years old. And I, I got saved so many times in these churches and nothing happened. I come to AA and I was there about 18 months. And one night we were closing out the meeting and I'm holding hands and uttering the words of the Lord's Prayer because I wouldn't call them praying. I didn't know how to pray. Right. And, uh, and he touched me just for a split second, but I knew it was real. You felt something. Oh, I knew it. I knew it. Absolutely. And when God touches you, you know it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I never doubted it from that. And my mind, my thinking about God changed in an instant. I went from not knowing about God to knowing that he was real or he, she, or it, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have no doubts whatsoever about God. Well, do you think, so you you think as you were it, you said that happened a year and a half. I was 18 months. That was January of 79. Well, so what was going on with you during that year and a half that kind of prepared the ground to where you were? I was stuck on the first step. You can't do the second step. That's where you come into you know, the power. And, and I'm sitting there, everybody, all of my friends coming in, they won't step nine and ten. I'm still back there on one. Mm-hmm. And my sponsor put me on the 10th step, which is in the now, and I was doing one still. And I was taking the inventory every night, and you know, and, and I still do it to this day. Every night I lie on that pillar, I, I take and replay my day, and, and I see the things that I should have done, that I didn't do, or I did do, that I shouldn't have done. And another vital lesson I've learned on that 10th step is, you know, instead of beating myself, senseless with a rubber hammer of, of not doing the best I could today. I realize that I'm a human being that we that, you know, even the, even the earth itself is not perfect. It's 27 miles longer around the equator than it is around the poles. So God created the earth. And he, well, it's, <laughs> it's oblong. You're that's, saying that's, the earth is oblong. No, it's just not round. It's just not round. This it, comes from being a surveyor. Well, and you were telling me earlier Clark, you were a surveyor. So. I was a surveyor for 50 years. Yeah. That's Clark's Great Spiral of 1897. And, and when you look into the sky and you see a star and it's got a motion, that star is sitting still. It's the earth wobble that causes it. But anyway, I didn't mean to get off on the <laughs> but, but yeah, I know God is real. I, uh, I, I, no doubt, nobody will ever change my mind on that. And I was finally able to separate religion from God. Finally able, you know. So this is different than that, that God with the slate and the long well, beard. All I knew about God was what my mother had taught me and, and what the churches had taught me. And, and and I thought to find God, you had to go over to the Baptist church where, where they went. Mm-hmm. And I learned the first night I was in the A, one of the things that attracted me, this lady in Panama City, Florida, she said, you know, when... She asked me how I felt about God, and I said, well, I don't know. I said, he ain't done very much for me, but I haven't done anything for him either. She said, well, in AA, we seek the God of our own understanding. And that was a tremendous freedom, the fact that I did not have to go through a religion to find God. And uh, so that's when I dropped the religion. To this very day, I was very skeptical. That's one of the things I love about AA is that, you know, I was absolutely anti-religion when I came in here, absolutely against it. And what I found, and it took me a little while, but what I found when I got in here, simply put, AA removes the middleman. Mm -hmm. I can get, I got a direct connection with my higher power in these rooms and working this program. And I don't need someone telling me how to be connected to my higher power. I've got it. And that's pretty fabulous. It It, sure is. And you get it from... uh, Quit fighting everyone and everything. 
and allowing it to happen. And then uh, that's one thing I think it's incredible about AA. We were talking about this in the men's meeting this morning because I hadn't been to a meeting all week. So I went to one this morning. I've got one now and I'm going to one tonight. I was going to suggest you probably ought to go to another one. <laughs> that's tonight. like three meetings today. I, th I think I'll be better after all of this. <laughs> Maybe back to baseline. Yeah, back to baseline anyway. But that lady that told me about God also told me something else. Everybody, all my friends and my family, everybody told me I drank too much. <laughs> and I never could figure out how much too much was. You know, I mean, this is the 10th drink. Even the psychiatrist that I was seeing for other reasons, even he told me, you got to hold it down to two drinks a day. But he didn't say what size. You know, that, right. that could have been two gallons. You know, or, or which two. Yeah, could be the two. last two of the day. But, you know, she told me something, and, and it stuck. Even as drunk as I was that night, it stuck. She told me to just consider a train rolling down the track. It's not the second or third car that's knocking you down, my friend. It's that engine. It ain't the caboose. And if you don't pick up the first one, you don't have to worry about it. So I learned that AA only protects me from that first drink. Once I ingest drink, ingest a drink, I'm gone. That's right. And that's the way it's always been from the first time I ever picked up a beer. I mean, I never drank a beer or a liquor. Any one thing in my life, you can have nothing but a beer to give me, keep it. That's my experience, yeah. too. And, and, I mean, I, I still remember specifically one time where I had one drink, yeah. and I still had enough willpower not to drink after yeah. it. But, man, if I wasn't pissed off about having just that one drink. Yeah, yeah the regrets. Like on Friday night, that was a big one. I got paid on Friday. Saturday morning, I hated myself. I absolutely hated myself. I blown half my paycheck. Every time. Yeah. And Felt like crap, too, yeah, right? They, oh, yeah. And, and what have I done to my family? I got a wife and kids, and, and here I am tied up in that stuff. And so that's where I was when I came to AA. But what nobody knew, my wife and the doctors and nobody knew, the, the last year or so of my drinking, I'd been drinking for, you know, 25, 30 years. The, what nobody understood and to this day why I think some people slip and I, after I picked up that last chip I never slipped but I think the reason that I never slipped was I wanted to quit drinking and I did not know how I came to AA to stop this hurting and if it meant getting rid of alcohol that's fine because I didn't want to drink anyway I'm drinking now because I've got to drink mm -hmm. it had me like a vice and it just it, the more I resisted the tighter that vice became and and that had been going on. I went through Christmas of 1976, and I don't remember anything. I went into a blackout on Christmas Eve, and I woke up in the emergency room over here with my cartilage torn in my right knee, and that was New Year's, well, it was New Year's Day by the time I come out of that blackout. I heard about all these long blackouts, but I never heard anybody standing in one a week, but I did. And, uh, and, and you know, I came out of there, and, that was the beginning of the end. My knee was about the size of a basketball. And to this day, I have no idea. I tore, I tore cartilage on both sides of my right knee. Don't know how you did it. No. I don't have any recollection. And nobody, none of my friends know. And, wow. And, yeah, it was, I had cirrhosis of the limb. That's a wake-up call. So yeah. what happened when you came to AA? Everything was falling apart behind, all around you. And uh, alcohol... Well, you were willing to give up alcohol, but so what happened to you during that first month? What was it like? I went to a club in Panama City, Florida. Can't remember the name of it, but there's a lady in there. Her name was Ruby, and she was in Al and AA, and her husband was a commercial fisherman who fished out the Gulf. And she understood it loud and clear, so Ruby put me on vitamin B12s, and uh, I think the prescription, I mean, the instructions were for 500 milligrams a day and she put me on 5,000 milligrams. 5,000, 10 of those pills a day. I started peeing green, just a pale green. And I, I said, Ruby, I'm, these things, I'm peeing green. She said, not gonna hurt you, keep on taking them. She got me a jar of honey. And I told her, I can't keep nothing down. She said, give me a plastic spoon and a jar of honey. She said, just put it in your mouth. This honey's already been digested by the bees. I mean, it's, it's, so you stick it in your mouth and it'll go through the pores of your skin. It'll get there without even swallowing. So I eat that. That's the last honey I've ever eaten. 
But but she was right. And then about the third day, she said, you got to call your wife and tell her. I said, she's not going to listen to anything. Where, where were you hanging out during three days? In this club in Panama you're just, City Park. You were yeah. just in the club, and they were I got, helping you detox. Yeah, that's where I detox was in that club. And let me tell you something else funny about this. That's different than it is now. No, oh, yeah. Big time. But people don't well, detox in the these club. these were alcoholics, purebred alcoholics. Mm -hmm. I mean, these people, these weren't mixed up. Heinz 57, these people were alcoholics. Well, this was also before we had the detox centers. Exactly. And treatment centers. And yeah. Even treatment centers. There was one here, Fellowship Hall, but that was it. And and uh, they used Benadryl. They, <laughs> what I would do, and I started working with drunks. That became my MO was 12-step and drunks and absent going on the cold. And I always kept a couple packs of Benadryl. And uh, you, you get them where they so you know, if you can get them on the B12s, that'll calm your nerves down. But that Benadryl, it doesn't hurt them. You give them two packs of Benadryl, and that'll give them old shakes. And then uh, and the honey will put some sugar in the body. And, but those were the things we did. And, and uh, I've, I've done that 50 different times with drunks. You know, give them Benadryl, ride them around, talk to them. Wow. Uh, you know, that was, we had to. We, yeah, we had to work with the people we brought in. The people we twisted, there was nowhere to put them. And uh, so I. So you got sober after three days there, and she said, call oh, your wife. She, she, the third day, I got sober on a Tuesday. October, I mean, August the 23rd was one week to the day after Elvis Presley died. His was the 16th. I'm sitting out in the, in the when he's shopping center, a little shopping center had an A and P in it. They opened at six o'clock in the morning. I had two dogs and I have a little Renault that I stole the tags on. I did not have a driver's license in Florida or North Carolina. And uh, I'm sitting out there waiting to go in and I'm trying to decide whether to get wine or beer. And I'm listening to my radio and it came over the radio that Elvis had died. This was the 16th on Tuesday the 16th. Huh. And it, it, Elvis had died. In, in Memphis, and, and and I thought, now, my my problem was all my life was my daddy was a drunk, and I never had a chance. They didn't give a damn what I went to school or not, my mother or my daddy. And, and that was my problem was that I just got, never got enough women. I mean, there just wasn't enough. <laughs> I never got enough women, and I never got enough, I had no money, and it was my daddy's fault. All this was his fault. It's his fault. Of course it was. Yeah, it was uh -huh. my daddy's fault, and 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 I'm sitting there thinking, you know, I'm dazed up on those Valium tranquilizers. And I thought, my Lord, he's 18 months older than me, and he's dead, and I'm still alive. And he had all the money. You couldn't even count it. That's and right. the women, he, he shot at Linda Thompson sitting on the commode, you know, when Miss Tennessee. And he had all the women <laughs> in the world. And here I am down there in Pit Falls of Florida. And <laughs> But I'll never forget that in the next two years. That made an impression on you made a lasting impression on me because of all the things I blamed on my daddy. You know, did Elvis did it the same thing I did. Yeah. Only he was much more successful at it as far as, <laughs> it, of course, he killed him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. so you say that um, that it took you 18 months that you were stuck on step one. Yes. What, what changed? Well, what changed, uh, I was stuck on step one. I could not believe that there was a power, power that I could turn to that would do all these miraculous things. And uh, so I go to the meetings, and and they talk about God, and I couldn't say anything. I didn't believe in God. So when you say you were stuck on step one, you weren't having a problem working step one. No. You just couldn't go to step two. You couldn't do two. Sam, I never thought about drinking after Ruby's. When, okay. Ruby, when Ruby got me sober down there in Florida, I never had one single thought about drinking from that day on now. My wife died two years ago, and I never thought about drinking. I gotcha. had three bulldogs die, and I've never thought about drinking a single time. And I think what I'm trying to say, and I don't know how to say it, I think the difference in me and people who slip was I did not want to drink that last year or so. I'm drinking because I had to drink. I'm addicted to alcohol. Yeah. And uh, and so that I don't know if it's right or not. That's what what I I never wanted to drink after I got sober. I get what you're saying. I think that's right. I yeah. mean, that was my experience. Yeah. I didn't when I came in. I didn't. I never went back out again. But I, I tried to quit. I tried to control my drinking again and again and again before I came to AA. And it was just when I came to AA, 
I had run out of options and yeah. I was willing to do whatever because I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't take it anymore. Yeah. I gave up at that point. And what I gave up was the idea that I could ever drink again. That's why I didn't want to go to AA. I had two friends who were in it and it was like, boy, this is drastic. I go to AA. They're going to be talking about not drinking ever again. And it helped me here in that it's not ever again. It's one day at a time, which sounds like a some kind of a mind trick. And it is. It's a mind trick. Wait a minute. It's a trick? But it's real. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not living a year at a time. I'm living a day at a time. I use a little psychology on myself. Everybody's taking bets on when I'm going to have a slip. I'm riding on the wagon we used to call it. He's on the wagon, but he'll fall off. And my wife, I honestly believe that she was so angry with me after 21 years of marriage. And I'd gotten sober around a group of people that none of us, and I didn't know a soul, and she didn't either. And she had tried all those years to, to, to get me sober, and she had failed. Where was she living? She was living here in Greensboro. I was and too. And you got sober? I got sober in Panama City, Florida, but I came home every other weekend. I see. Yeah, Go yeah. ahead, man. Well, well. So she resented. Yeah, and I took those resentments. Like my, like my mother used to tell me that I'd be in Jackson Training School. That's a reform school by the time I was 12 years old. And I took that to mind. I'm damn if I'm going to reform school. So I got 12 years old and I didn't make a reform school. Then it got over 16 years old. You'll be down in central prison. That's what they told me. My family told me that. My, my mother. And, and you'll never graduate from high school. Well, I turned it around on them and I used that to prove to them. But I, I, the only reason I ever graduated, I didn't care a thing about going to college. I wanted to play sports. And, and I was not about to let them tell me that I'd never finished school. And I did the same thing with, with, uh, with the drinking. I, I used all that negative thing they would tell me, the hell with you, I'll show you, I won't drink. And I think sometimes you have to get mad at this thing called alcoholism. You know, you, yeah. you, you, you might have you you taken half my life, but damn if you'll get another day of my life. Mm -hmm. Just get mad and yell. And, and I've done that many, many times, and I've used that negative stuff instead of letting it in my mind, but damn, if I'm getting drunk, I'll show you. Yeah, I like that. That's, yeah. I remember uh, Beth was her name. She was in a meeting, and she was, and she, she hated the expression happy, joyous, and free, which is an expression you hear a lot in AA, I'm happy, joyous, and free, and she said, well, by golly, I must prove it. I'm staying sober, and I'm not going to be happy, joyous, and free. <laughs> And she used to have to get sober. I love it. And sure, she was laughing that she said, I think she might have made it to being a little bit joyous, but she turned that. Yeah. Well, you know, that's like a, a friend of mine got sober. Uh, who, he's a scientist. And he was like, all right, you've given me this thing, and I'm going to try it. And But the thing is, I'm going to prove it wrong. But in order for me to do that and have the integrity of my scientist background, I got to do it exactly the way it's supposed to be done. And he did it, he worked the steps, and he's still sober today. Mm -hmm. And it works. Yeah. It just works. But you, you, whatever, it, whatever it takes for you to do it, being pissed off about it, being doubtful of it, or, or, or being you know, believing it'll work, whatever it takes, and there's some sure many other things, do it. Just yeah. do it. Well, I knew it worked by being around you people. I knew you people could do it, but could I? I was on antibuse. The doctor had put me on antibuse when I, when I got in AA. And what's antibuse? Antibuse is you, you, it's pills that you take. It, it, you take one the first day and then a half a pill for four days. So you take actually three pills. But when you get to that fourth half pill, you have bought yourself five days of sobriety because if you drink on that, it will run your blood pressure. And I know it will because I've seen it happen twice. It make you so sick. So you got to wait five days. All right. Now, so I was on interviews when I came in in August. And, and, uh, and I really didn't know if this program would work or not because I had another crutch. 
So these people in AA told me, said, Wendy, you're not going to ever know if these steps of this program works as long as you own that out of you. So I, it scared me to death, but I laid the out of you down. That, now, is that when you were in AA? That's when I first came to AA. So you used anabuse. I, I wouldn't think that. On, yeah. The doctor put me on it. The psychiatrist put me on it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had never taken it before. So what did you think about that? Well, did it work? anything did it work? would keep me sober. I didn't drink. Yeah, you didn't drink. <laughs> I was in AA when he put me on anabuse. I've heard of people drinking, taking anabuse and drinking. Drink, but yeah. let me tell you something. They're going to pay a price for it. Yeah. I'd like to go back uh, this first 18 months because I didn't clear something up on that. Uh -huh. I'm stuck on the first step. Everybody's passing me by and doing all this step work, and I'm sitting there. And on a Friday night, I told you I'd been trying to find God for 40 years of my life, and I never could find him. And I asked this Catholic priest, a friend of mine in AA, I said, do you think I will ever find God? He looked me right square in the eye, and he says, no, I don't think you will, Wayne. Not the way you've been doing. He said, but I'll tell you this much. God will surely find you. So I'm at this meeting on a Friday night. It was raining in January of 1979. We were holding hands. There was about 15 of us in the group, and I was uttering those prayers. In the back of my head back there, I got zapped, and I went. I know God touched me. There's no question about it. I went from a non-believer to a believer in a, in a blink of an eye or less. And then I was able to continue on the words. And the next week, I took the second step that day, and I knew it. And the next Friday after that, I took my third step with a guy I had over 50 years of sobriety in this program. Uh -huh. And I took my third step, and he told me the importance you know, he, he, I went home, I got on my knees, and I turned my life and my will over to God's care. And I asked him to show me what I can do every day of my life to help those people who are still sick. 164, we realize we know only a little, but God will disclose more to you and more to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day. It says the man who, for the man who's still sick or the person who's still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order, but obviously you can't give away something that you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him, God, is right. Great events will come to pass for you and the countless others. This is the great backlog. And that thing has been in my mind. I've taken that third step. I've read every morning of my life. My toes touch the floor. I thank you, God. Give me a night's sleep. Thank you for letting me be part of your world another day. I go to the bathroom. I feed my dog. I make me a cup of coffee. And I usually go out on the, on the patio, and that's when I turn my life and my will over to God every day. And I ask him to show me what I can do today to help those people sick. Not necessarily alcoholics, but sick people. Mm -hmm. And I've done that for 40 years. And the six year in sobriety, I got good. It's something I know neither one of you guys know this. And I've been pretty careful not to say too much about this. God called me to be a minister, and this was six years in this program. I didn't understand it. I didn't even belong to a church. I'm thinking that he called me to be a preacher. Mm -hmm. Well, that wasn't what it was at all. And so two Baptist preachers and myself, a few months after this, started the Lighthouse Outreach Ministry. And I stayed in that ministry for 20 years, from 03, I think it was, till, uh, it was, it was 03 until, two, I mean, it was 83 till 03. And we run thousands. I mean, well, I don't know, maybe I'm exaggerating. We run it over a thousand men through that ministry. We had three houses over here on Gregory Street. Was that a recovery center? We were taking, it was a halfway house. Halfway house. But you got to remember, there were no halfway houses in Greensboro at that time. Mm -hmm. The Oxford movement moved in, and they were doing far better than we were doing. So, you know, they were using... In 1970... In 73. I mean, they, I, this was 83 when we started this. Mm -hmm. There were no Oxford houses here then. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we started those men's halfway houses, and I, I, I can count on them five fingers the number of people that probably stayed sober. I don't know how many that later got sober, but I don't want to break anybody's anonymity. There's three or four in Greensboro who went through our program. Mm -hmm. 
and and hundreds of them, you know, were kicked out for various reasons. But the Oxford House movement came into Greensboro, and they were moving these houses everywhere, and they were doing a much better job than we were doing because we were feeding those guys and providing houses and getting them jobs. I worked 10 or 15 other people. I, that's all I worked in. My business was recovering alcoholics. Hundreds of them. And, and, uh, <laughs> you helped a lot of people doing that, though. Well, I, I know quite a few people that have been touched by that. Right. I mean, I've heard. That's what I've heard. And you were instrumental in in my recovery when I first started coming in. I mean, I remember you. You were just so well, plain spoken. I don't know what the heck. <laughs> you, when you were sharing the meeting, they would cut through everything. I remember one time we were talking about sex, and it was, it was, <laughs> I love this story. It, I've never forgotten it. We were talking about sex, and everybody was talking about it, the imperious urge and how hard it is when you get sober, and what do you do about this, these urges? And you were going, well, I'll tell you one thing. When you get a little bit older, <laughs> things ease up a little bit. I was looking at a pretty girl the other day. I looked over, and I was thinking to myself, I wonder if she can cook. <laughs> and I cracked up. I've never forgotten that. And now I've gotten to the age where sometimes I wonder if she can cook. But I, I, I try to get my mind to stay there. It doesn't stay. You know, back to that ministry. I didn't know that I was. I, I didn't know I was a minister. That's what I'm saying. Is you were a minister in that? You were a minister in AA. I didn't know it. I, you know, I didn't even know what I was doing. I just know that 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 thing. I had these strong feelings in my mind that God was calling me, but I didn't know what it was. And mm -hmm. and I couldn't imagine being a preacher since I was very standoffish about religion. And so he sent me over there to the lighthouse and, and uh, I got in there with two guys that were covering alcoholics. Both of those preachers were in AA. And uh, I had the pleasure of giving one of them his 50 year chip. He's got over 65 years in his program now. And, uh, and I've been doing it every day of my life since then. And I, when I came in, I go out to Fellowship Hall. It was just opening. I volunteer out there. Well, I'm so half crazy and with depression and everything else, they'd send me to go get the mail over the post office or go get two bags of ice. That was my volunteering out there. They wouldn't let me take any fist steps or anything. And they wouldn't let you talk to anybody. <laughs> well, I can, I can understand it, but by the yeah. same token, you got to remember, back in those days, these were real alcoholics. It was uh -huh. not mixtures. These these were 100% alcoholics that we were dealing with then. I put my name on the 12-step list, and I self-employed, and I put down, I'd go out anytime. And, and I would. I'd drop my work and go on the 12-step call. Well, there's about 150 names on that, and it was run by a telephone answering service here downtown, and the guy was in the program that owned that. And so these women... Drunks at night would call would call that AA answer service, and it would be these people at the answer service that were not alcoholics. Well, they abused the heck out of me. I think what happened when I put down any time. They transferred all the calls well, they, to you? Yeah. yeah. I, I, every night on the weekends, I'm getting 12-step calls. I, I did hundreds of them calls, hundreds. And try to get somebody, this is another thing about AA, in the big book, he suggests don't never go on a 12-step call by yourself. Right. Try finding somebody to go with you and see what that's like because you can't find anybody. So I went out by myself and I give up on trying to get people to help me. I went out and I've had some really crazy experiences on 12-step calls. I got out to Oak Ridge out here one night and it was Christmas time. And this kid, his daddy and his mother, his mother lived in Florida and his daddy had a girlfriend. They lived in Oak Ridge. So his daddy had gone to Florida with a girlfriend, and he was in his daddy's house. So he called the answering service. I went out there to him, and he had a German Luger that his daddy had gotten after World War II, and he had that. He's going to kill himself. Well, I gently took that gun away from him. And, uh, and uh, by this time, the Crawford Center had opened. And uh, so that, I took him over to the Crawford Center, and that's the last time I ever saw that kid. I put his daddy's gun back where he had gotten it. And another time, <laughs> it was a motel out here on the highway. It was a Sambo's restaurant out there. And it was a Motel 6 right behind it. Get this 12-step call. I go out there, and this guy was crazy. And he had a, a knife. And 
I mean, a big knife. And he tried to cut me with that knife, and I, he was so drunk that I didn't hit him or anything, but I took it. I didn't hit him because he was so drunk and he was so crazy. I took the knife away from him and put it in my pocket. I never did take the knife back, but he tried to stab me. Well, this is some of those experiences. We well, to go that's, why you, uh, uh, that's why you don't go by yourself. Well, if you you didn't get to go yeah, with you, you try to go midnight and get somebody to go with you and see yeah. how many didn't answer the phone. Yeah. Now Wayne talks about what he learned from Emotions Anonymous. Uh, Emotions Anonymous here in Greensboro. Now they got their own big book. They got their own doctor's opinion. And their doctor's opinion is by a West German psychiatrist. And he talks about pain. And he says that any time that we feel pain in our body or in our mind, that God is trying to tell us that something is wrong. That's his only way of totally getting through to us. We will run like crazy to avoid that pain. And then he goes on to tell us even where the doctors are missing this. He said the purpose of a physician is to cure diseases. But what the American doctors do is try to stop that pain. Now, if you take that person's pain away from them, they'll never get sober. And, yeah. and that's the truth. It's, it's, yeah. it's, if, you know, that's the pain is what got us here. Do you remember that song that Blake Shelton had about, about how he got to prison and he got that hound dog? And, <laughs> you know what he says at the end of that? He got that hound dog and, and put this dog that was in heat out in the swamp. So they go out in the swamp chasing this escaped prisoner, which was him. And, and the dog, the hound dog, I mean, the bloodhound went to the dog in heat. So he goes on to end that song. He says, love got me in you. I think he killed his girlfriend or something. And love got him put in prison and love got him out of there. <laughs> 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 That's oh the God. way that song ends. That's love funny. got me in here and love got me out. <laughs> well, I've enjoyed this, fellas. And I hope, you know, we didn't say anything about how much it used to be, but there were only a few meetings here. When yeah. I came in, I think it was either nine or ten meetings. And so home group was not a big thing back then. I mean, we all went to the same meetings pretty much. Mm -hmm. uh, AA was the home group. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and and another thing, we were all alcoholics. It wasn't much. I mean, we didn't debate that too much. Mm -hmm. The thing that come along that really divided us big time, of course the drugs did, but was smoking. What happened, most of the people came in like me and they quit smoking in that first or second year. Then then, then they didn't want to go to where the smokers were. Then all the newcomers were smokers. Right. So they all abandoned and they went out and started these new smoking meetings and left us over there at the Unity Club with all them down. But, but I smoked when I came here. And I me know too. how hard it is me to quit too. smoking and quit drinking at the same time. So I stayed with them guys. But that divided the heck out of us was that no smoking a lot more than you would think it did because ah, they ran. It they, makes sense. The people with sobriety left, the, they left, the, left they, where they, the newcomers they left. were. It finally dawned on me. I was so depressed with that bipolar. I remember you talking about being bipolar yeah. and dealing with that in sobriety. What's, oh, my God. What has that been like for you? Well. I mean, how do you deal with it? Well, you, <laughs> it's... Most, and I've worked with many, many, many bipolar. Somehow or another, it's like they end up with the bipolar people. I can pretty well pick it out. I don't know how, but the ones that's, that's got bipolar, it's, it's sort of like the black sheep again. Uh -huh. Most people, and the people trying to sponsor bipolar people, they have no clue what they're doing. I, I've tried, and I, ha I couldn't do it. No, and, and what happens, my mother had it. I've seen her go four and five days without even sleeping. My oldest sister, the alcoholic, she was bipolar. My youngest sister, she died at 37 years old with aneurysms. Because she, she just gets so high that and her mind literally blew up when and she was seven years older than me. And when all those deaths came along, and then I'm bipolar, but it really took off. I mean, it really took off where I had to. I, I had to be heavily medicated, and they put me on lithium, which was about the only drug that was going at that time. Well, when I got diagnosed bipolar, because they was treating me for just regular depression, with antidepressants and all that. Uh -huh. When I got in AA, and they discovered that I was bipolar, 
which is a different form of depression entirely. Yeah. So lithium is, is what they put me on that as a metallic solid. So in the meantime, uh, you get in these moods and, and uh, it affects everything. It, yeah. Very creative. It, it, when it's high, it's like everything is wonderful. Oh, Lord, you spend money like crazy. Your sex drive is like to put a blowtorch in your groins. I mean, it, <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, you know, it, it really does. It, and then you get depressed. And it's like, it, I tell you, the easiest way to understand this is like from being a Teddy Kennedy Democrat to Jesse Helms Republican. That's the difference. <laughs> <laughs> well, today you think like That's this. bipolar. <laughs> Truly. That's, but if you can prevent the highs, the or no lose. It's not like uh, it's not like a regular depression. Yeah, That's but something. I've heard that people are bipolar. They don't want to give up the highs. Well, they don't do ride them highs. That's yeah. what all of them do. You know, it's like if one beer make me feel this good, what will four do? Right. So, so how do you deal with that working with somebody? You do you try to get them on lithium? Is that no, 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 no. no. I, I I try to many different things. I get them to walking. Uh -huh. Which I did. I walked thousands of miles out there in the morning. through it. Well, you tell them what's going to happen, and once they understand what's going to happen, they'll start listening to you. It's like talking to a drunk when he's happy. You're not getting anywhere with him. Yeah. You get him when he's damn depressed, and now when he's hungover, he'll listen to every word you're saying. Well, depression, the bipolar depression, is pretty much the same thing. And you, you don't criticize him. You never criticize him, but because it's not his fault. This right. is an inherited disease. And, uh, it's an and imbalance. there's many things you can do. One, you can exercise. Physically, go to the gym. A lot of people burn that highs off by going to the gym. And some of them go two and three times a day just to burn them highs off. Of course, you can eat something sweet, like candy bar or something, but then you got the problem with that sugar's going to drop you. Uh, or... Uh, so you didn't you didn't you don't deal with with drugs. You were dealing no, with it with, no, hell no. I don't with exercise and all no. that. I tell them what they're going to feel like and what they need to do. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it's sort of like sponsoring somebody. You have to build up a confidence between the two of them. First off, he's got to trust you. That's number one. Number two, he's got to believe that what you say is confidential. You're not going out and blab it to the world. And number three, he's got to know that what you tell him is the damn truth. But the most important thing of all, that you're working with a manic depressive or an alcoholic, you let him know that uh, I'm going to confront your ass. And it may not be pleasant, but I'm going to tell you what I see. And, you know, most of, most bipolar people have terrible problems with this God thing. But, you know, the American Indians and the Lutes up in Alaska and the Aborigines over in Australia, long before the missionaries got there, they believed if they lived a righteous life, that there was a year after. They all believe that. And that ain't religion. That's fit. And it's all throughout history. Yeah. It's throughout history. And we know these basic laws. We know we're not supposed to kill anybody. We know we're not supposed to steal. We know that before the missionaries got here. Well, hang on a second. We're going to move to our next segment. Questions from the old, for the old timer. Duck! I mean, Al! <laughs> it's time for our old timers question from a listener. Who you calling an old timer? You! That's what happens if you don't drink and you don't die. No matter how long you've been sober, it's still one day at a time. Sonny? Who you calling Sonny, Pappy? You can post a question for us on boiledowlaa.org or email giveahoot at boiledowlaa.org. We don't have any questions yet. Come on now, y'all step up, send us questions. So we're making them up right now. So, so we got a made up question. We got a made up question. It's a real question. It is question. a real question. We just, we got a made up questioner. So, Harvey from Dogtown, West Virginia asks, can I find something to keep me from hurting so bad? Can I find something to keep me from hurting so bad? What say you old timer Don? Well, if you're an alcoholic, yes. Give up, surrender to all the ideas in AA, and it and things will get better. And the reason I say that is because of all the people within AA. That's what it took for me, was to see people who were smiling and happy and whose lives were good. They were uh, living full lives. 
They were not trembling. They were not unwashed as I was. <laughs> they were not red-faced. They were uh, not addicted to anything. They were not filled with cravings. They were not filled with fear. And they were not overwhelmed with insurmountable problems. And I was like, how in the world are these people doing this? So it's a really good question because from where I was when I came in, it seemed impossible to get out of my situation. I didn't believe that I would ever be happy again. I thought maybe I could quit drinking because I knew a couple of people in AA, but I didn't think I was going to be happy doing it. Yeah. And sure enough, all that came to be and, and even more. But it started with being willing to get sober somebody else's way. I just give up and unbelievably, if you can have just enough faith. I mean, I had faith in my sponsor. was The, the guy that uh, I first talked to in AA, he said he was my sponsor and he was going, it's going to get better. And one time I was talking about my son and started crying. He said, well, hold on to that because that, that'll help you stay sober. It doesn't have to be that way ever again. And there's a lot of hope in that. What, what about you, Wayne? Well, I appreciate what Don said, and I totally agree with him. I think all my life, I knew I was the black sheep. <laughs> and I come to AA, and all my life I'd been trying to find somebody that understood me, and I never could. The first thing I remember about my first AA meeting sober, when I'm getting sober, was I have found all the other black sheep. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Welcome home. I knew I was home, and, and what a feeling that was. I didn't know how to do it, but I knew that you knew how to do it, and I listened intently. And whatever you told me, I'd try to do it. I wouldn't try; I would do it. You know, and, and uh, I was home, mm -hmm. even though I, even my wife didn't understand. Nobody understood the people I work with, but I come to a strange group of people that I didn't know a soul and all of a sudden I knew they knew and that was such a relief to find an outlet that mm -hmm. you know, it was such a relief I found the other black sheep now my wife gave me a picture on, on my 15th birthday in AA with these two big what do you call these big ducks they're drakes yeah <laughs> it's a big black duck a drake and it's a big white drake she come, I think she paid $300 for that picture. <laughs> she came in, had on her arms, big picture, about 30 inches wide. And she gave me that. And I said, well, what in the world does this mean? She said, you'll figure it out. And I hung it on the wall. And it, I, I, when, it, when it hit me, I understood exactly. What she was saying was, I went from a black duck to a white duck. <laughs> wow! Well, it was. I love that. Yeah, it was. It, I do too. I still got it hanging on the wall right now. But uh, she was in Alon and had been a number of years by this time, and, and uh, she was working in a recovery center. She went back to school and uh, forty years old, and she went back to school, and, and she ended up. Uh, she worked two years at a treatment center over between Western Salem and, and High Point. Then she went to. Uh, Fellowship Paul, she worked there 17 years. And during that 17 year period, she met some doozies because she was a family counselor. And each time I became a little bit more of a, what would you call it? I, I became like a saint in her eyes. <laughs> in comparison. In comparison to what she was hearing out there every day. I went. <laughs> he wasn't so bad. <laughs> well, that's the truth, and that that helped our marriage probably so much. <laughs> oh my God, Wayne, it's great. Well, it's the truth. I mean, it, you know, and and. Uh, <laughs> you know, for me, I think every single one of us, whether we 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 use it, we we describe it in some way or that's different. I think every single one of us, when we come into these rooms, we're looking for how can I stop hurting. Right, and for me, it was um, I. I didn't know what else to do, and when I came in here, I mean, Don, you said it, doing it someone else's way. 
I had tried so many ways to control my drinking, and it wasn't working. And then the crazy thing that happened was, yeah, I needed to stop drinking so that I could work the steps, but in working the steps, it turned out that the drinking wasn't the problem. I didn't know how to live, and learning how to live through the examples that people were giving me, through the direction that, that sponsors and trusted friends were giving me, and through the, using this program, then life got better. But the kicker is, you know, shit still happens. You know, there's stuff that happens that I don't like in my life, but I react to it so much better today. It's not the end of the world when I don't get what I want or when something, you know, when I get that big bill that I wasn't expecting or, you know, any of that stuff that happens. That was that would just send me over the edge. Well, I you know here's a, here's a bill for thousand dollars that I wasn't expecting to come along, even though I should have been because it comes around every year. And oh, I'm just gonna get drunk and shove that in a drawer and forget about it. Well, that's what made my life unmanageable there, and uh, and that was that was a lot of the hurt that I was doing. It was stuff that I was doing to myself. And I came in here and y'all showed me how to live. And you let me be your friend. You were my friends. And I needed those so badly. And I love that you say that thing about the black sheep thing. Because, <laughs> you know, one of the things... I, or the black drake. Black drake. Is <laughs> when, I, uh, when I was... Before I came to AA, I was hanging out with alcoholics and addicts. And you know what? I still am. Yep. But we're recovered. They're sober this time. Exactly. So, you know, I found the black sheep early on. I was hanging out with my black sheep people then, but yeah. they were still all up in the problem like I was. And when I got to AA and I found all you black sheep that were turning white <laughs> and, uh, and you were in the solution, then that helped me get into the solution. And that's when I started stopping hurting. Started stopping hurting and started having some fun in life. Oh, yeah. Well. It's a great deal of fun. I like hanging out with alcoholics. They're crazy. Just a little bit. <laughs> and even though they get sober, it seems to me that alcoholics still, I like, I like that wild energy. Oh, we're fine. I can hear that wild energy. Wayne, thanks for joining us uh, here on the Boiled Owl. Absolutely, Wayne. We really appreciate well, you coming. I'm glad to have done it. Are we done? We're, we're just done. about there. We've got a little bit more for me to read here. <laughs> thanks for joining us, folks. The Boiled Owl Podcast is posted on the 1st and 15th of every month. Visit our website at boiledowlaa.org. Leave feedback there or ask a question. And uh, you can also email us at giveahoot at boiledowlaa.org. If you want to know more about AA, Google Alcoholics Anonymous and your city or visit aa.org. Please note, Boiled Owl AA is produced by members of AA and only expresses our experience and opinions. It is not endorsed by AA World Services. Thank you.